one of the problems that I had, honestly, from going from an individual contributor into more of a leadership position is you have this tendency, at least I did, to sort of project toward where you do these things and you deliver value and you make something that's awesome that didn't exist before that is much, you know, it took someone else 10 hours to do it. It takes me 30 minutes to do it. And now that's 30 minutes. I'll put that in my pocket and I'm now linchpin in this process and I'm very satisfied about that, right? This is Taking the Lead, a podcast for B2B tech professionals, leaders, and executives who want to learn from female icons in the tech industry. In each episode, host Christina Brady interviews women who are driving revenue for some of the most respected tech companies in the world. Are you ready to get inspired? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady. I am the Chief Strategy Officer of Sales Assembly. And if this is your first episode that you're listening to or you you all are familiar with the show, you know that what I do is I bring the female icons in the tech industry onto the show, and we hear about their stories, their tips, their tricks, and today is no different. I am so excited to welcome Renee Senka on the show. Renee, welcome. Hey, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to to be featured on this podcast. So looking forward to our conversation. I'm equally honored that you said yes. Every time one of my guests is like, I'll be on your show. I get so excited because I like I'm working with the the best women professionally in the world. So the the luck and the the joy is all mine. You are currently the head of revenue operations at Rudderstack, but you have a really interesting career before that. And I right. think for a lot of folks listening, we think, I don't know that there's a lot of women who find themselves in the position that you're in. So how did you navigate your way to getting where you are right now? What's your journey? Yeah. So thinking about how I got to to where I am today, a lot of it I attribute to the the relationships that was built throughout my career. But my operations career started at Cisco, actually. So the big networking company, not the food Cisco or the rapper. Someone thought that once. <laughs> interned at Cisco my senior year, for my senior year of college. I went to Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, uh, and they had a campus in Raleigh, Durham. So, you know, just ended up through the business school that I was a part of getting, at, getting my first job out of college there after the internship and started as uh, sort of like an analyst product manager on their commerce platform, which I I couldn't have even told you what that was before I started that job. I think like a lot of operations first jobs, you know, you you could have never imagined things that you'd been working on. So ended up doing like a lot of product work on their e-commerce ordering platform. So in that role, I, I think the most important thing that I learned there was I got involved with the director of our team who was very invested in new hires and taught them all SQL, which is like an analytics programming language. And so got a lot more into the analytics side of the space, which I found very interesting. In college, I also studied statistics. And with Cisco, you're dealing with so much data that it's really interesting, you know, when you can look at it with the with a business perspective and try to draw some insights out of that. So I, you know, I, I worked on some projects that I found interesting you know, leveraging some of those more analytical and technical skills. And the next move of my career was really a lot more driven by me wanting to get out of North Carolina. So I'm I'm from Chicago originally. I think you're in Chicago now. And I told my boss and and I was, you know, very fortunate to have very supportive managers throughout my career at pretty much every company I've been a part of. And I was like, I want to move to California. I want to be at the Cisco campus in California. I love my job. 
I really like the team, but I want something new. I'm, I'm young and, and I want to, I want to be in California. I, I work in tech. I think that's where I want to be. And so he was great about finding, you know, a role for me that would be a scope that would still be interesting to me that that was on a different team that was just happened to be positioned in California. So I took a promotion. I got a new role on a partnerships go-to-market team where I was supporting analytics applications that Cisco's partners would use to run their business. And just as a note, for those of you who don't know, because I don't think anyone really knows this, but Cisco's go-to-market, about 90, 95% of their revenue is actually booked through partners. So the really big portion of, of their okay. sales operation, right, is, is through partnerships. So I went to move to California, join this partnerships team, was working on a lot of the analytics and program management tools that the partners used and got pulled in on, you know, sort of like a startup within that team, so to speak, where myself and a few more junior engineers got to build a new application for those partners where they could sort of manage everything about their bookings and their their rebates and and what have you. So that was really fun to sort of lead that type of initiative. And after a certain point, you know, I had been at Cisco for six years and I was ready to, to you know, very anxious to, to get to the next stage of my career and, and learn new things and have a bigger impact on the overall business. And, and I think at a large corporation, eventually you'll sort of hit a ceiling for a short period of time because they want you to get more people leadership experience and training and all that stuff before you get to the next level. And I think at that point in my career, I was a little impatient. And so I was thinking, you know, maybe I'll just, I'll join a startup because so many of my friends work in startup. And part of that is not, that is not important uh, to, to have that type of experience and that training, but I was ready to just have a new challenge and to, to be at a smaller company where I could see how everything worked. And I was fortunate to go to my friend Jen's 30th birthday party in Hawaii. And uh, and I met a girl there who's a, still a close friend of mine who did PR for this company called Bolt. And she had she worked very closely with that team. And she was like, you know, they are doing something really interesting. They have amazing product market fit. And I don't know if they're hiring for anything, but like they have something really cool going on. You should see if there's anything that, that you know, appeals to you. And I did some research on the company and I figured out a little bit about what they did. And when I looked at, looked into it, I was like, you know, this is a business model where partnerships is super important and they don't have anyone doing partner operations. So I should tell them that they need to hire me because I was 25 or something. And I was like, yes, that is. And I think maybe I was older than that, but I was very ambitious and I've been called ambitious in my career. Sometimes I take it in the wrong way, but that was absolutely hundred percent of the energy that I was exuding then. And I was like, I, I know what they need. And I think that I can, that I can do that. And they actually didn't have a job posted for partner operations, but Emily introduced me to the COO. We had a really good conversation and um, ended up, you know, throughout the interview process, you know, presenting what I thought their ecosystem looked like and how important partner operations would be for their scaling and, and all this other stuff. And, you know, obviously I ended up getting that job and I was at Bolt for a few years. Well, there, I, I ended up building a lot of the things that I said I wanted to do in my job interview, actually all of the things that I talked about in the job interview. And even now I look back, I'm like, that, that's how their ecosystem does work. So I, I had a lot of fun doing that. And slowly throughout my time there, you know, you deliver, you build those projects, you deliver that that work, and and you know, you you take on new things. So 
similar to the Cisco stuff. And I feel like that got off to kind of a boring start. So I apologize about that. But I, I learned <laughs> with SQL skills and about database analytics and all of that stuff. And so when I got, when I was at Bolt, one of the things that, that they did for their partners is they would give revenue share on money they would make. And that's very common. That's, I don't think that that's anything sensitive. But to do that calculation, we needed to know. And for me to say, as the operations person, this partner gets X dollars, we have to know how much money we made on that customer. And, and the way that you make money in, in fintech sometimes is, is, you know, maybe on a volume basis. So I don't know, like, you know, you use like your credit card online, you pay $100, maybe we take 10 cents. I have to aggregate uh, all those 10 cents across all the part, all the customers that, that they referred. So to do that, I had to get really into the weeds on, on how the, you know, the data moved through the business and how we made money as a company. So just to do this one small portion of my job and, and no one really had a good handle on it until then, because it's a startup and you know, there's a million things you're working on. So, you know, with that perspective, it expanded into doing more things in sales operations, pricing analysis, deal desk. Um, and then eventually sort of more and more supportive of the sales team with forecasting and program management and compensation planning and calculation. And, and so just kept sort of getting into more and more projects on the sales operations side, eventually hired out a small team. And then, you know, through my network, uh, got connected with the head of sales at Rudderstack and they were looking for a head of RevOps. I wasn't really looking for, to make a move uh, actively at that time, but you know, I, I thought that it would be a great opportunity to take the next step in my career. And I felt that they had, you know, some who's familiar with that space. I thought that they had a really unique opportunity to just crush it. And having been at a startup that I joined Bold at Series B when I left, I think they had just closed the D. Oh, man. The company that had grown that much in that short period of time and be a part of it. You learn so much about what it takes to scale a company operationally, particularly if you're involved in all of that. And so, you know, I'd had that perspective. I had ha I'd gotten some of that leadership and people leadership experience and learned a lot of lessons. And then, you know, sort of felt confident to, to take the next step of my career, which is um, leading the revenue operations function at, at Butterstack, which is where I'm now. I mean, what's so fascinating about your journey, and one thing that I want to touch on real quick, is you mentioned early on, you kind of dropped it in and you were like, I was ambitious. And then you said, I've been called ambitious a lot in my career, sometimes as a good thing, sometimes as a bad thing. I mean, I almost want to dig into that idea of ambition because yeah. I feel like, especially for women, there's this idea that ambition looks like I'm moving into a role before I'm ready. Whereas I think for others, ambition looks like I'm stepping into the role that I should have always had, right? Yeah. Like it's a different view of like, oh, she's she's super ambitious, meaning like she's trying to move way too fast versus, yeah, you're just stepping into your light. So for you, when you say sometimes good, sometimes bad, when do you feel like you felt like it's good ambition versus when it's been perceived as bad yeah. ambition? Yeah, I and mean, the thing is, I don't think that there's such a thing as bad ambition. Uh, yes, ma'am. But when I think about even just being sort of critical of myself, if I think about the times when it was good ambition versus bad ambition from my perspective, the bad ambition is when I am just, I'm a I'm naturally a confident and decisive person and I like to do the research and gather all the information and connect with people and connect with dots and look at the data. So I think I know, and sometimes I don't know. So if I think back to being earlier in career when I was ambitious and you know, you might say 
someone wouldn't have characterized it as ambitious if I was like right and I had communicated it in a good way, right? It was just I like, see. oh, she thinks she's right and she wants to go for that. Whether that's a she or a he, maybe it's a different perspective in that yeah. way, obviously, with this podcast, right? And, and being a female leader. But for me, I am an ambitious person, but the uh, the way that you approach it, right? Is it from a space of like, I think I'm right. So I want to do this. And I'm like, no, I can do this to like, this is the right thing to do. And it's a subtle difference because, you know, ideally you also want to do the thing that is the right thing to do, but it's a little bit more about the team than just yourself. And I think that's an important distinction when you think about being an individual contributor versus, you know, being a leader. Big time, big time. And I mean, and drilling, drilling into that further. So what I find fascinating is that it almost sounds like, I don't want to say that you sort of fell into this like revenue sales operations role, but it seems like it's something that early on in your career or maybe in school, you didn't necessarily envision yourself being like, I'm going to be working in the tech space, in revenue operations. This is what I want to do. But at some point you found yourself here and you're happy. You like it. Yeah. Like, did you fall in love with the industry, the role or both? The thing that I really like about it is I'm very like analytical person. I love to solve problems and find answers, particularly answers that, that maybe other people couldn't have come up with from their pers- their purview. So I, I do like that component of it. I'm also a very people-oriented person. And with revenue operations, you're sort of at the, in the middle of the operations and the technical teams that might be building something and the legal teams and the finance teams and the sales teams and the customer success teams and partnerships. And, you know, you work with all these people, everyone in all of those teams and the people that do well in all of those positions are very, very different. And I'm, I forget what my Myers-Briggs is, but it's basically the one that says like, you should be a therapist. (laughs) I'm very analytical in terms of my technical skill set, and I love to build things and solve problems. Then I also love to understand what people think. So right? I want to understand how it works. And then I want to understand what's the, what's the personal component. That's just how my mind works. So I really like that I get to, you know, that when I do my job well, technically, it's very satisfying to me because I get to help the people that I'm supporting. And so I think it worked out that way. You know, you know, I did business school, but I only did business school because I was going to be, you know, done with the credits on my first major halfway through my junior year or sophomore year. So I was like, I want to stay. So I need to do something. And business school is competitive. And I am a very competitive and ambitious person. So I was like, I'll do that. And, you know, it ended up working out. But that's why I think it's it's a good fit for me. It's incredible. It's it's great when it works out like that. Right? When you're like, everything I've been doing has somehow led me to this. And I'm happy, at least for now. I'm also a believer that your career could change multiple times. But for somebody like you, that's amazing. And kind of just looking into how sales ops, rev ops orgs are structured. So I'm excited to talk to you because on this show so far, I have not had a ton of women who are in this field in the industry. So one, do you notice as well that this is the type of role that not a lot of women are either drawn to or in, or are you seeing that start to change? Because I think back to the sales ops teams that I've worked with for the last 15 years, and I can think of three total women that I've worked with directly in operations out of probably 50 or 60. And so it seems like it's it's a very male-dominated industry, good or bad. It's just that's the perception. Yeah. So, I mean, I will say I, I don't know that I experienced that necessarily, but 
when I was at Cisco, that their director that ran Cisco Salesforce and since was woman, the you know head of revenue operations and, and multiple heads of revenue operations and heads of systems at Bolt, that that was a, there was a woman and there were a few sales leaders there as well that were female. But the, how I got into it, like I said, I, and maybe why that is, is I think it, you know in general, and this is probably something you experience as well, right? Like sales. It tends to be more male dominated. Some of the best sales yeah. people that I've had the pleasure of working with have, have been female as well. And I think it's just a, you know, it's just a shift that's happening in general. But I don't know. Did I answer the question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all about experience yeah. and kind of perception, you know, and that's also what's interesting about this industry is there's trends that you can point to. Where you're like, yeah, in general, this is the case, but then you'll find pockets where the trends are being broken. And I yeah. feel like if we can make those pockets larger, that's a good thing. Yeah. And if we talk about another pocket, even amongst the members that we work with at Sales Assembly, so we've got about 200 member companies, and I would say of each of them, the revenue slash sales operations teams are all structured a little bit differently, mm -hmm. and they're all made up a little differently, and they all do like kind of the same things, but sort of different things. And the one thing I've noticed is that there is not seemingly as much opportunity for leadership in revenue operations as there are, say, in some of the other like customer facing sales roles. Sure. So you're in a leadership role now. So talk a little bit about like what it's like on that side of the house to make a transition from IC into leadership and just what that opportunity looks like. Yeah, definitely. So I think just in general, right, in operations transitioning from IC to leader it is a difficult thing to do because I think the things that make yeah. you successful and feel like you've achieved something when you're an individual contributor versus when you need to lead are very different, right? So when you're an individual contributor, I think it's a lot about optimizing things, solving problems, you know, streamlining processes and getting stuff done. When you are leading, it becomes less about the deliverables, although those are always important. And I think the way that I was able to get into, you know, having a seat at the table in some of these conversations is being a dependable person who you can give a tough problem to and they can figure it out, right? Because they have a unique perspective and they know how things work and they work very hard and they'll get it done. So when you want to get into sort of a leadership position, a management position, you need to still be able to, to practice those things. But it's about, I think it's a lot more about making decisions and building relationships. So yeah, I think you get into this mode of delivering. And one of the problems that I had, honestly, from going from an individual contributor into more leadership position is you have this tendency, at least I did, to sort of project toward where you do these things and you deliver value and you make something that's awesome that didn't exist before, that is much, you know, it took someone else 10 hours to do it. It takes me 30 minutes to do it. And now that's 30 minutes. I'll put that in my pocket and I'm now linchpin in this process and I'm very satisfied about that, right? Because it, when you're early in your career, that's sort of how you get measured as, as being successful. And it is very satisfying, particularly if you're a problem solving analytical person as so many ops folks are. So you try to do all these things and, you know, have this, you know, amalgamation of responsibilities. You know, I touch all of this stuff and I know all of this stuff. And you're like, that's value. And it is valuable and it's valuable for the company in a certain way. But once you have that much perspective and you're, you're that expert in those areas, it's really better for the company, honestly, if you relinquish some of those things and try to solve yeah. a new problem and widen that perspective. And I think that you might have some 
a almost emotional connection to having done some of those projects where I put so much, so many hours into this and now it's so easy and now someone else is going to do it. You know, you got what you needed to get out of that project just by accomplishing it. So now you go do something else. And I think at the beginning, you have to get good at relinquishing those things and trying something new, relinquish, try something new. And so you can develop a broad perspective so that you are in a position to say, hey, okay, well, I know this, and I know this, and I know this, and now I can make a decision. And then suddenly, you know, and not suddenly, but hopefully you're building relationships with all those people you're working with along the way. They're like, oh, I wonder what Renee thinks about this, or I wonder what this person thinks about this. And maybe you're not in a position where you're managing people, but suddenly you have a perspective that is important because you've worked on so many things. And then from there, it's a matter of eventually, you know, it's like, okay, well, I still want this person involved in these things. So maybe I should help them scale so that they can, you know, they can grow their career and they can take, take the next step. And that's when it gets to, I think, tying back to the original train of thought is that, you know, when you're in a leadership position, you need to make decisions and you need to make sure that those are the right decisions and, and that you bring people along with that. And you, you know, you develop a unique perspective in a role like revenue operations, where you touch all these different teams and you work with all these different teams. So you know, so then you are at a point where you can confidently and with that uh, and confidently from for yourself as well as for others make those decisions and tying back to sort of what I was saying about the ambition piece, right? You know, I put like some of the decisions I make now, I if you asked me four years ago to make a decision, I still would have made a decision and I would have said it really confidently, but I might not have been right. And I might have not considered all the things I needed to consider. Now I've been through yeah. that process and I have the same level of confidence but I have a lot more self-awareness about it that that is really sort of key, right? What's going to make you a good IC is also very important as you're a leader, but, but it's not, it's, 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 it's different and you have to unlearn some of those things. Oh, you pulled the self-awareness right out of my mouth. I was like, that's what I was going to say. It's like the, it's the level of self-awareness, which I think so much self-awareness is also self-taught. Like there are certain people that have the ability to reflect in a non-egotistical way and make improvements to the way that they go about their work that's going to better the org overall. And it is. It's that level of self-awareness. And the other thing that I find fascinating is I'm listening to you just talk about, because for me, I come from being a very, very traditional sales leader, right? Leading go-to-market organizations. And I feel like, you know, I might get some hate mail for this, but I feel like leadership on the go-to-market side of the business being revenue producers it is not easy, but it's simple in the sense that it is very, very rooted in the people leadership, the coaching, the training. Am I working on my communication skills? Am I working on my feedback skills? But my my line of sight, right, if I'm a frontline manager or a director, a little different if you're a VP or C-suite, but it's to manage my team, these people, and get them successful. And the impact is large from a revenue standpoint, right. but I kind of have my blinders on a little bit, not yeah. in a bad way. On your side of the house, it's almost the complete opposite because I have met VPs of revenue operations who are, without a doubt, leaders in their organization, even though they don't have any direct reports. Mm -hmm. right? They're like, I'm the VP of revenue operations, and there are all of these you know, segments of the business that are a dotted line over to me, but I'm also kind of a solo contributor, right? I'm working at a smaller, maybe Series A, Series B yeah. company. I'm seeing things from high level. I am a VP. I do have authority. I have a seat at the table, but I'm not doing the people management. Right. But the leadership impact is massive. And then there's another side of it where you also may have to have that people leadership piece of it. So for somebody like you, 
especially if you're looking at a role where leadership and operations is so much larger, where it's like I'm leading multiple lines of business and the impact is vast, and then I'm also potentially leading people. How do you ensure that you're getting the support that you need to be able to effectively do both of those things? Yeah. So I think that maybe this is a cheating answer, but I think Give it to me. you have to have a good manager and you have to have good uh, people that understand. I think most of the time, the person who's leading revenue operations probably has a boss who hasn't ever, you know, been a Salesforce admin or anything like that. Right. And so, so what you do might not be something that they understand technically, but I think if you have organizational trust with whoever your leadership is, maybe if you're at a smaller company that could be the CEO or, or the COO or, or some leading strategy and ops, if they trust you and you have a, a good relationship, I think you can, you can have those conversations that, Hey, you know, when I joined Rudderstack, there were three AEs and our head of sales, and there was a VP of customer success who now has a very large team. She was running everything back then in terms of all of the customers. We had, we had a lot of customers, right? And, uh, you know, small partnerships team, marketing team is a lot smaller than it is now. And the requirement for me when I joined was to make a lot of decisions to say, okay, what is the technical foundation and the process foundation that we need to have to do two things? I think one, you know, make sure that people can do their jobs effectively, which is sort of like MVP baseline, right? And then two, then more importantly, and I think what I thought was important and what I talked about, you know, as I was considering this role was like making sure that everything is set up in a way that is measurable and that that is agile so that as a growing company, it's different if you join a very large organization, but we need to, to be able to like implement new programs quickly and, and pivot quickly and be able to look back at the last four months and say, did that work, right? And if you don't have the right data structures and systems in place, you just can't answer those questions. Or if you can, it's gonna take you a week to answer it. So, so the, you know, I had to lay that foundation and then at a certain point, you know, the company does well and you grow very rapidly. Suddenly all of those, you know, those responsibilities and those tools that you built and everything like need iteration and we're launching four new programs and we launched these, like, you know, we're going to conferences and putting out a lot of content, hiring an SDR org that didn't exist before. So there's just, there becomes more project work and it's an, it's an hours in the day problem. And so I think you have to have a good relationship with your leadership team to figure out, okay, like, you know, we want to stay lean, but you need leverage, right? And and it's uh, and it's a point where, you know, like I said, you have that trust, they trust your decisions and your approach and, uh, and, and you know, and then you get those resources. Sometimes it's not always possible, but then you, you know, but then you prioritize, right? And, you know, there are only so many hours in a day. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I think, the not only so many hours in a day, I think, is hitting, it's kind of the cherry on top in terms of why I think some people who are maybe individual contributors currently in operations might feel like there's hurdles to their career growth. Because from what I hear, it feels sometimes like the path to career growth, how do I advance in my seat, can feel murky sometimes. Like there's no, like on the sales side, if I'm hired as a BDR, and I want to be promoted to an AE, that feels very like A, B, and then maybe I'll go to senior AE, and then I'll either go the professional IC route and work in a strategic setting, or I'll move into leadership. And it feels like these very defined career path pillars, right? Like, I know where I'm going to go. Does it feel like that really exists 
in operations. And so what are some of the hurdles that people like you will hit as you're trying to figure out like, what does my career look like? Where do I go? What does growth look like? Yeah, for sure. I, I think I can talk about the hurdles, but I would say one of the things that is really important to consider is like in in operations, I think that there's a lot of, there's always gonna be work to be done. So I think if you're a good yeah. operations person, you probably don't have to worry you know, about not having things to do, but <laughs> I, you know, I won't say you don't have to worry about not, not having a job because obviously this, the economy is crazy right now. And, but you'll never be out of things to do. And, and so where the transition to leadership, it, particularly if you want to do people leadership and strategic leadership, sometimes, you know, someone's already doing that and they're already doing, you know, a good job or, uh, and there just may not be an opportunity where you are. So you have to think about, you know, that as something, right? Even if there isn't anyone above you, like they might not need someone to, to be at that level, right? You might be at a really small company that doesn't need like a VP of revenue operations. You can't just become that because there's not a need or maybe there's not budget for it or, or someone else is in that position. So I think part of it is understanding that with roles like BDR to AE, you know, you always need a, a, there's, you know, you always need another AE, assuming the company's growing, right? And, and there are certain right. metrics that are very measurable. You know, I've designed a lot of comp plans. So, you know, there's there's things that are measured and you can check the boxes and you can do those things and, and go to the next level. It's a lot more nuanced, I think, in terms of what the business needs, what the organization has. And, and you know, I guess that's something to consider in terms of like, it's not a hurdle, but it's just, you know, the opportunity needs to present itself. And, and I think you, you can be open to that and you have to be ready for it uh, when it comes. And, you know, I think the biggest hurdle for me personally, I think other than the project hoarding thing, which which I talked about, because uh, <laughs> that's really eats up all the hours in your day. I think oh my people God. do a really bad job, myself including, included at estimating how long it takes you to do certain things. Because in your brain, yeah, be real quick, be real quick. Yeah, because your brain knows all the steps and it takes you five right. to run through the steps, but then you have to do it and then your computer's slow and someone slacks you and it just, it doesn't take 30 minutes. You know, that example, right. I gave never took me 30 minutes. It just still took me two hours, which is five right. minutes less than maybe it took someone else. It still took me two hours and that's two hours and you can't get back. So that, I think that's something to get over. And then I think, you know, when you are in a job where you're solving problems all the time, you get a lot of good feedback when you write about things, right? And you, saw, and, you, and you solve it and you make it better and you go on. So I think as someone who also is very competitive, same thing, that can be positive or negative. I think it's sales, maybe, you know, it's, it's usually looked as a pretty positive thing, but you need to sort of relinquish your need to be right and be seen as right all the time. Because when you're in a leadership position, whether it's like a people management position or just like leading an initiative, it's not about being right. And it is about being right when you're an individual contributor. It's about being a good partner and a good decision maker. Those two things. That's I think that's really all that it is in a RevOps leadership position. So if you get into a point when you're having a strategic conversation with someone and you disagree with them, you know, I, I had a, a female leader actually at one point where we were working on this initiative together and we'd done this analysis. You're we really certain. I can't tell you what it is. And I honestly don't remember what it is, but I remember the amount of work we put into it and back and forth and the one-on-ones. And we get into this meeting. There's someone who's definitely more senior than us on a different team who had a very different perspective. And we felt that it was ill-informed or wrong or whatever. And on the call, you know, I was expecting her to be like, that's so wrong and like blah, 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 and all these things. And she was like, okay, like let's circle back to that offline and, and, and we'll go to the next thing. She didn't say anything. And afterwards I was in our one-on-one, -on -one, I was like, why didn't you call him out? 
on the call. And she's like, you can't, you can't do that. Like, first of all, you know, you could turn it into an ego match. And if you're in the, not the position of power, you're always going to lose that. It doesn't matter if you're right. You're, you're going to lose that battle. And, and I think, I don't know if there's a gender dynamic to be pulled out of there as well, but maybe there isn't, but you make it, you make it personal when you, when you have these arguments um, or, or disagreements publicly and, uh, and it just goes off the rails, right? And people also just don't like that. And you also, by the way, may be wrong. And you didn't know what you were talking about either. So being able to step back and not like sort of react and try to get to the answer in a collaborative way, which maybe is what you might do as an individual contributor working with a partner, very different when you get into those forums. And it's a natural inclination you might have as an IC to be like, that doesn't make sense. And here's why, here's the data. And, and it doesn't matter if you have all that information, because if you put it forward and you communicate it in that way, you, you may be already lost. And even if you're right, you know, it, you lost. <laughs> so that was something that I had to learn because I'm very opinionated and, um, and I like to, to have philosophical arguments about why we would do sales strategy a certain way. I don't <laughs> like that. Um, and, and not everyone likes to have those conversations out loud. And it's a different personality. It's different personalities on either side, right? Because you could have an individual contributor who, you know, on my end, I was probably being too direct or, or maybe rubbing people the wrong way with the way I was communicating. You could have someone on the other end of that sort of extroversion spectrum who doesn't speak up at all and they know that and they have to sort of work their way up to, to even just saying, you know, I disagree in a one-on-one -on -one setting. So it's all about figuring out, you know, what's the way that you need to communicate it and have an impact because you could be right and it not mean anything, right? And I think a lot of times, I hear this from ops people that I work with all the time. It's like, I was right about that. I was right about that. I was right. Oh yeah. After the fact, and no one likes and I told you so. And when you get to, into that mode, and I've found myself in that way sometimes, you have to think about what the problem is. And it's probably not your analysis. It's probably you. Like if you're right all the time, yes. it listens to you. Either, first of all, you're probably not thinking about all the times that you were wrong. You're only remembering the times that you are right, number one. And then number two, it's probably the way that you're communicating it. And once you can solve that, and everyone's different in terms of the problems that they have, the problems I have are going to be different than the next ops person that you talk to. Um, but that was that was something that took a while to discover. Um, and you just have to like sort of live through some of those things and be introspective about it. But but yeah, that was a long answer. Yeah. <laughs> You, it was a good one though. You hit me right in the feels because when I think about it, it's like, I can think back to moments where I have, I'll use the word argued. I've argued so passionately for something in the moment I was so sure I was right about, um, like willing to put my life on the line, right? And then later I think back and I'm like, hmm, perhaps, perhaps I wasn't right about that. And it's like, and then the learning comes later and you're like, I'm going to make sure I never do that again. But you're right, right? Like during the day, we think about all the moments where like, I told you I was right. And look, people don't get to the position that you're at or the position that I'm at because we're wrong all the time. We get to the positions that we are at because we make educated decisions based on data and intuition. And most of the time, they're the right decisions, right? It's how we get where we are. <laughs> we think about the things we do wrong, like late at night. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like during the day, I'm like, I was right. I was right. I was right. And like 2 a.m., 2 a.m., I wake up and that's when I was like, ooh. 
Except for that thing, I was wrong about that. Yeah, How and then I, I like open my computer and I change yeah. the Salesforce validation. And, and yeah, you're like, yep. Yeah, so that I I am now drawing upon it, and tomorrow I will bury it until it keeps me up tomorrow night. Yeah. So I've got one more for you. This this is either going to feel like a softball question, or it's going to be a really hard one. Mm-hmm. So whichever one it is, you're welcome. Or I'm sorry. <laughs> I hear in a lot of sessions that I sit in, I hear executive sales leaders. VPs, C-suite talking about, if my operations partners would do X, Y, Z, it would make it so much easier for me and my org, right? There's a lot of that lens of just like as a sales leader, if you work in operations, here's what you can do to ensure that we have synergy, right? I want to hear from your perspective, though, from your perspective as an executive on the operations side, what can sales executives do to help make your job easier, which in turn makes their job easier. But what would you ask of your sales counterparts to really help the relationship and move the business along? Yeah, I think I have. And, and that they'll probably all listen to this podcast and they won't tell me if I have relationships with all of my business. Yeah. And I think the way that you do that is, I think it's how you approach it. So the way that I approach anything in like life or in my career is I'm like, I look at it and I want to understand the way it works so I can make it the way that it should be. And that's something that is not a original quote for me. It's from a, a teacher that I had in high school, but understand the way, the way it works so you can make it the way that it should be. And to develop that understanding, I think you need to, you know, use your ops skills to like look at the systems and look at the data and all that stuff and say, okay, this is the way that it is here. And then you also have to figure out the way the world works, like the way things are now from the perspective of the people that are having customer conversations that are trying to launch a new demand gen initiative and figure out sort of what are their pain points and what are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish and why can't they do it? And I think building those relationships from that perspective where you're trying to, you know, to serve and help and and help them, you know, help revenue generating teams with the processes, the systems and the insights they need to like crush their numbers. I mean, that's what I want. I want my sales team to crush it. I want all the SDRs to crush it. I want that marketing team to have a million MQLs. And there's things I can do that can hinder them from their ability to do that or that can make it easier. And so I think that's one thing. And then another is, or the second one, is making sure your priorities are aligned. Because I think sometimes Ooh. I'll bring up something that I want to do or that is bothering me as a RevOps person who's like, I'm thinking about the legal implications of this and I don't like it. It's making me nervous because if something happens here, you know, then maybe it impacts, you know, this is my responsibility. It'll be my problem. I don't want that to happen. And, you know, you have an open line of communication. Like, I want to prioritize this. Can we work on this? And, you know, the leader on the other end may be like, hey, that's all well and good. I agree with you, but I have this problem. That's an immediate problem. Like we need this. Like, why don't we have, you know, this lead gen program we just launched isn't performing. Like that's way more important than whatever you think is important. And and being able to understand that, put it in the context of the overall business and say, you're right or you're wrong. And here's why. And then you have a conversation about it. So I think like that's where sometimes some of that may come from. Like my, if my operations team would do this, then we could accomplish something. I think the other thing too is like doing something in operations isn't always that easy like as as it seems like you never know some of the right. things just to prove it just to prove it it's fine yeah be fine. exactly so <laughs> it's like hey, well the reason i'm not approving it is because of this this and this if you're talking right. about deal desk i'm sure everyone loves deal desk yeah, but my quota yeah exactly well okay, they're gonna fine, sign today if, if you do this and that this doesn't happen 
then you're going to get a clawback and you're not going to like that. And I am not going to like it either because I'm going to have to calculate it and take it out of all your people's commission. <laughs> and that's bad for all of us. And sometimes, by the way, right. you need to push it through and it's going to change the business yeah. if, it, if it works and it's a risk. And so having those perspectives, right, and that empathy for sales is important. I think it should never be a contentious relationship. Mm-hmm. I love sales. Like, I think, like, it's really fun. Maybe in a different life, I would have been in sales. But I, yeah, I, I think it's all about just that that partnership and, you know, making sure everyone's aligned to the same North Star. That's the other thing. Sometimes they're not, right? You could have a, you know, very different strategic priorities, particularly if you're in a very large organization. Um, you know, the RevOps team wants to save save money or something and and sales team wants to you know everyone to smash their quota and get paid a million dollars a year you know hit the goal like those conflict like you you need to align on the overall priority that's a that's a least like an executive executive leadership problem one day i'll help solve those but not today okay so it was a softball for you good because that was an amazing answer it's like you had you had three or four kind of incredible tips there. And the last thing I want to call out before we jump into our rapid reveal section is I think that the best sales operations executives in the world are ones that love sales teams and respect the job and are truly there to innovate and excel and move forward. And there's this perception in the industry that you have to have your your revenue teams and your operations teams that are always kind of at odds with each other. And there's this like, there's been times where I felt like those two teams vehemently almost disrespect each other, where you have the operator who's like, ugh, salespeople and salespeople are like, ah, operate. And you're, you're the shining example of what it should be and what it needs to be, which is this this level of mutual respect and passion for each other and really working together in partnership. I think your coworkers should hear how lucky they are to have somebody in your position that views things that way. Because to me, that like that's that's the playbook, and more people should take that lens. So if you didn't realize that you just laid that out, you absolutely did, and it was beautiful. And now I'm going to pull you into the rapid reveal if you're open to it. Sure thing, go for it. Hopefully they're just as easy as the question. Yeah, just a bunch of softballs. (laughs) But, you know, build synergy between operations and sales. Go. And you're like, uh, don't worry. I've thought about that. Okay. So rapid reveal section. Here we are. We have five questions that are meant to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. You have less than a minute to answer each. Okay. Let's jump in. Sure. All right. Number one, what's the best idea you ever had that you didn't tell anyone about? Best idea that I've had that I never told anyone. Um, I'll just be honest with this answer. I don't think I have one. Every idea that I have that I think is good, I tell someone about. And honestly, most of the time they're bad ideas. So I I don't know. If I have a good idea, I think idea hoarding is a silly thing to do because, I mean, if you think you have an original idea, you are absolutely wrong. It's all about the execution. If you want, like, let's say you thought of the next great startup, like someone else has thought of that. They just haven't executed it. So I think ideas are a dime a dozen. But particularly if you have the time to be creative, so you don't always, and I don't always have the time to be creative, but I can't think yeah. of a time I've ever kept an idea secret. If anything, I'd see too many ideas. <laughs> see, if anything, that was a trick question and you passed. No, this is really coming from my own insecurity because I'm a big fan of Shark Tank. I love watching it. I'm like, what would my Shark Tank idea be? And then I think of bad ideas and I don't tell anyone like, you know what? I'll expose one. I used to think that if you would make a baby onesie with like a Swiffer pad on it, like a like a mop oh my, on it, because yeah. your kids, your kids crawl on the floor anyway. And I was like, you could clean the floor with your kids and then you take them out of it and you wash it. 
And I was like, I shouldn't say that out loud to anybody, but then I just did. But like, it's a good idea. And like, I'm a parent, so I can say that. If I could have put a mop on my child, and let him crawl all over, we could have accomplished two in one. Well, you can um, build an MVP, I think that, you know, I don't know if it's <laughs> venture funding, but you can certainly slap a wet slipper on your baby. And I'm just it. saying, you know what I mean? Like, let him crawl around in one of those, you know, I, I digress. Most of my Shark Tank ideas should not leave my brain, but that one is for you and for everyone. All right. Number two, what's an irrational fear of yours? I, I would tell you, I think it's rational. Like, it's irrational. And my irrational fear is that my wedding will be a disaster. I'm getting <gasps> married in basically 100 days. It was 100 days. Oh, my God. Before. So it's getting down to the wire. And so there's just so many things to do planning wise. And, and then I still haven't sent the invitations, which I'm making me really nervous. So there's all these little things. I'm like, oh, my God, it's just not going to happen. I have to show up and there's flowers and people are going to be sitting in sitting on the ground and it's not going to happen. So I have that, this irrational fear that my wedding is going to be a disaster, but I, I don't think that it will be. So, um, but, but it makes I'm me very nervous. <laughs> Listen, wedding anxieties, just that's, that's a for real thing for sure. Um, it's going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. Get your invitations out. That's yeah, what I'm going to do after this. I have to. Okay, great. Yeah. I was like, you were like, they're in a box right here. I'm ready to go. Yeah. All right. Number three, what's your favorite hobby? This year, my hobby is planning my wedding. But yeah, uh, normally, I, my my favorite thing to do with my free time is I love to host and bring my friends together and new new people and cook for them and you know set the table and get some flowers. I just I really enjoy bringing that experience together and creating those connections. So that's my that's the thing I like to do. If I had five free hours any day, I'm like I'm hosting a dinner party. So. That's what I, that's my hobby. I don't know if that's a hobby, but that's what I like to do with my free time. I mean, I know, I know another girl who's a very close friend of mine, and I swear to God, this is her hobby. She is the most amazing host. She makes me look like a garbage can every time I host because people come over. I was like, wait, you want like a LaCroix? Go in the, go, go in the fridge, help yourself. They're, they're terrible. Tap, but it's, not even <laughs> it's just, they're still in the box. I just yeah. got them from Costco. That's just help yourself, leave me alone. fear too with the wedding. Right. Because I know that I'm right. gonna, and I've had, yeah. So. Yeah. Like I, I, Worst case, you'll make it happen. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. But that's. Yep. <laughs> All right. Number four, what's one of your pet peeves? One of my, I like that you say one of your pet peeves because I have many. Because I know we all, of course people, we do. Right. My, my, I, every time I call out pet peeves, my fiance, he's like, you have. 12 pet peeves. It's not a pet peeve. He's, like, you can only have one or two. That's a farm. No, I have a farm of peeves. Many. Yeah. And this collection. Yeah. yeah. Like, What's oh. your favorite? But What's your favorite pet peeve? Mind is I hate losing things. I hate losing things like physical objects. Like the thing that I like, like in one of the socks, like in a, in a set or, I mean, if you are female that exercises, you know, you get the sports bra and they have their removable pads and one of you lose one of them. I will tear my apartment up for three hours looking for you know of the second half and so that's my pet peeve i just the feeling of knowing it's here and i don't know where it is and i might need to can't see it. it oh got it it just drives me up a wall so mm -hmm. i would say that that's a pet peeve right it, it's, it's a disproportionate level of frustration so I, I feel that i feel that number five last but certainly not least what skills are you personally working on right now i mean i think it goes back to some of the stuff that i was saying in terms of the you know communication and, and making sure that you're listening and responding and considering other things you know if you've done something a certain way and so it's like oh can we do it this way my reaction is to be like innately like well we do it this way for a reason this is the way we do it blah blah, blah as opposed to like well why do we need to do it that way and oftentimes 
you know, I, I end up making the change. So it was just that initial reaction and, and making sure that it's communicated well. And, and we reduce the cycles back and forth trying to come to a decision. So just being cognizant of that. And I think in a remote working world, it's almost easier to be, you know, cognizant of that because it's a conversation on Slack. So you can look back and read it and say, oh, I, I just like reacted to that immediately yeah. instead of like asking a follow-up question, which is what I should have done. So that's one thing that I'm, that I'm working on actively. I love it. Well, you're, you have so many layers to you and I feel like so much knowledge to share. We just scraped on the very top of it. So if there are folks who want to get to know you, want to meet you, maybe they want to hear about your company or just more about your journey in revenue operations from, I just got into this to now I am the head of the department. Where can people go to find you and connect with you? I guess on LinkedIn, I'm the only Renee Sanka, I think in the world. So PS, like at the end of the letter, P-S-E-N-K-A. So you can shoot me a message there. I'm hiring on my revenue operations team right now. So if you want to work for Renee, yeah, so here you go. I posted about it if if you see on LinkedIn. But yeah, no, I'm always happy to to have a conversation with someone. I think I was a little nervous for this conversation, but if someone wants some one-on-one advice, I'll, I'm an open book. But I mean, I hopefully we had a good conversation as well, but I, uh, yeah, anyone can reach out, whatever. And you can also cut I love it. I love it. I mean, I filled, I filled a page of notes and I feel like we could do a whole nother episode of all the little things I want to dig into. Like when you said I built a lot of comp plans, I was like, let's talk about it. But <laughs> next time, I know for what? the time being, <laughs> Yeah. Most people probably don't want to hear about the nuances of pop lads. Maybe oh, they do. Find it interesting, but um. oh, they do. You'd be surprised how many executives I sit down with that are like, "So I'm having to rehash my comp plans," and I'm like, "Here we go." Thought leadership around compensation planning is very, very needed. So if you are looking for that, Renee is your gal. <laughs> awesome. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show and being an absolutely incredible guest. It's been wonderful to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation and. I don't know when you're publishing this, but I hope you have a good 4th of July weekend because it's Friday 4th, 4th of July. So yes, you too. Thank you everyone for listening till next time. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Taking the Lead. If you're looking for more inspiring stories from women leaders in B2B tech, then visit us at motionagency.io slash taking the lead.